your Bible with you tonight, let's go to Exodus chapter 24. Exodus chapter 24. It's been a couple of weeks since we've been in Exodus. We had Easter last week and then have an evening service. And uh, so I've been able to marinate this message a little while. And then I didn't get to preach this morning. And so I'm telling you, I'm wound up tight. I've got to get this out of me or I'm going to explode. And uh, so tonight we're going to cover the second half of Exodus chapter 24. And uh, the title of this message uh, that sums up this text is The Man God Uses. The Man That God Uses. Exodus 24, 9. Then went up Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, paved work of a sapphire stone, and as it were, the body of heaven in his clearness. And upon the nobles of the children of Israel he laid not his hand. Also they saw God and did eat and drink. And the Lord said unto Moses, Come up to me into the mount and be there, and I will give thee tables of stone and a law and commandments which I have written, that thou mayest teach them. And Moses rose up, and his minister Joshua, and Moses went up into the mount of God. And he said unto the elders, Tarry ye here for us, until we come again unto you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. If any man have any matters to do, let him come to them." And Moses went up into the mount, and a cloud covered the mount. And the glory of the Lord abode upon Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And the seventh day he called unto Moses out of the midst of the cloud. And the sight of the glory of the Lord was like devouring fire on top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. And Moses went into the midst of the cloud. And get him up into the mount. And Moses was in the mount forty days and forty nights. Let's go to the Lord in prayer once more. Dear Lord, it is our desire to understand your word. Not just the historical details, but the spiritual application. So I pray and ask, Lord, tonight that you would guide me as I seek to uncover the truths of your word. And I pray and ask, Lord, that you would just give us hearts and minds to receive them, that we might ponder upon them, and that they might direct us as we seek to be used by you. God, we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. There is no doubt that God used Moses. Moses was used by God in a big way to impact his world. Just think about the life of Moses and the impact that it had that God brings him out of obscurity, essentially, and he becomes the deliverer of a nation of people that are in bondage. He leads them out of their bondage. He establishes their governmental rule. He is the lawgiver that gives them the law code. He pins the first five books of the Bible. We are still influenced by Moses today. Uh, he, there are refrains of him in our Capitol buildings in uh, Washington, D.C., recognizing his impact as a lawgiver, um, not to mention the impact that he had on those people that were around him in that day. I, I think that we would all like to be used by God to make a true and lasting impact on our world. 
I, I really believe that. I, I think that that is something that is in us, and then it is amplified when we get saved. We, we want to make an impact on the world. Uh, although much of the activism of our day is a bit misguided, and it makes for a better show, but seems to lack some substance, I believe that it is born out of a true heart desire to make a real difference in the lives of people, right? You can get on any social media platform, turn on any screen, somebody's going to be having a campaign, a protest, or some sort of movement for some people or some group or some issue. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to make an impact on their world. In fact, sociological studies have shown that the millennial generation and the generation behind them have identified that their goals in career are not as much to accumulate wealth and security. They place a higher priority on making a difference in the world. Now, as I said, I think a lot of it's misguided and lacks substance but the desire is there. It's within us. We're created in the image of God, and even unregenerate man and woman still bears the imprint of God's making, and because of that, it is in our very nature to want to be creators, to be people who make an impact and people who have a purpose. The good news is that God has chosen human instrumentality to bring about needed change throughout all of history. If you and I just simply go back and, and look at the Bible as a narrative, and we read about the people that are highlighted there, what we will notice is that God chose men and women to be the instruments of change, to impact their world. Just consider some of the people that God used. Adam and Eve. It still astounds me that God only created two people. He created man out of the dust of the ground, and then he took a bone, the DNA structure, out of Adam and created a woman. And then he said, y'all do the rest, right? Be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth. And they did. And so God allowed Adam and Eve to impact their world. He allowed them to populate the world. Uh, think about Noah and his family. God chose them out of all the people on the earth, and they found grace in God's sight, and they came through the flood, and they restart the human population. We think about Abraham and Sarah. God calls this couple out of all the people on planet earth because he wants to make a nation for himself. He wants to create a vehicle of people through which he can work in this world. And, and he turns it over to them. And they don't get it right every time, do they? They make mistakes. They have failures. But yet God uses human instrumentality. And the list goes on. Joseph, David. Esther, for such a time as this, right? God put that young Hebrew girl in that place to save her people from the, the annihilation that would be coming. Nehemiah, the wall builder, God specifically used him and positioned him and gave him favor with the Gentile king and allowed him to go back and rebuild the walls of the city of Jerusalem. Mary, the mother of Jesus, this young girl who finds favor in the sight of God, and God entrusts himself to her. 
Peter, John, Paul, the list goes on and on. What we notice is that God uses human beings. God doesn't reach in to the affairs of mankind every time he wants to change something. He puts people in the places he wants them to be, and he gives them the opportunity to impact their world. The question is, what made these people useful to God? What made these people useful to God? You and I have lived long enough to discover that not everything that comes through our hands is useful, is it? Sometimes, being a pastor, people are well-intentioned and they want to donate stuff to the church. And sometimes I go through it and I find out it's not useful. These people just can't throw anything away. And so it becomes my ministry to take it to the dump. Now, don't, don't take that personally and think I'm going to throw away everything you donate to the church. It's just the fact. Not everything that comes through our hands is useful, is it? Sometimes it's broken. Sometimes it's rotted. Sometimes it's mildewed. Sometimes it's marked up. Sometimes it's worn out. Sometimes it just simply doesn't work. And so there are qualities that things are useful. So what is it that made these people useful to God? Because after all, they all had unuseful counterparts and contemporaries. Other than Adam and Eve... There were other people who lived during the time of Noah and his family. There were other brothers. Joseph had other brothers. God couldn't use them to do what he needed Joseph to do. David had other brothers. There were other girls in the kingdom besides Esther. There were other young women on earth besides Mary. There were other men on the planet besides the 12 that Jesus chose. So what made these people useful to God? In our text, we gain some insight into what made Moses useful to God. Now, we understand that this chapter is primarily about the ratifying of the covenant that God is making with the people of Israel. Make no mistake about that. That's what the chapter is about. Chapter 24 is about the ratifying of the covenant. Just, just think back for a moment. It takes place in the context of Mount Sinai. They arrive at Mount Sinai. They set up camp. Exodus 19, God says, purify yourself for three days. Put a border around the mountain. Don't let the people come close. I'm going to address the people. And so Moses has led them out of Egypt into the wilderness. They come to the meeting place with God. They have set up camp outside of Mount Sinai. God comes to descend. And God gave the Ten Commandments verbally to these people from that mountain. Exodus chapter 20. So it's all happening right together. They are still there at Sinai here in chapter 24. And God calls Moses, Aaron, Aaron's two oldest sons, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel to approach unto him on the mountain as a delegation of the leadership of the nation. So remember, at the end of Exodus chapter 20, after God has spoken verbally, and it shook the ground, and it was lightning and thunder, and it scared the people to death that they said to Moses, Please ask God not to talk to us anymore. You go talk to God, and then you come and give us God's message. So it's after that that God calls a delegation of the leadership of that nation together. As God does that, Moses builds an altar of 12 stones representing the 12 tribes. 
He puts the covenant into writing. What God said in Exodus 20, 21, 22, 23, Moses writes it down. He makes animal sacrifices. He takes that blood, half of it, and he sprinkles the altar with the blood. Then he takes the written contract of the, co of the covenant and he reads it to the people. They agree to the conditions of the covenant. Yes, God, everything that you have said, we will do and we will obey. And Moses takes the other half of the blood from the animal sacrifices and a hyssop branch and he dips it in the blood and he sprinkles the congregation with the blood so that both the altar and the people are sprinkled with blood, sealing the covenant. That's exactly what's happening here in Exodus 24. As a matter of fact, in Hebrews chapter 9, we have a three-verse summary of this establishment of the Mosaic Covenant. It says in Hebrews 9, 18, Whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and of the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. And so this is what's going on in Exodus 24. It's the ratifying of the first covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the covenant of the law. After Moses officiates this covenant, Moses goes up to the mountain and the delegation of elders go back to the camp for 40 days. This is the primary meaning of the text but in the secondary, we identify some elements that enabled Moses to be used by God. And so we understand Exodus 24 is about the covenant. But inside of that, as we are observing this man Moses that is greatly used of God, we can pick out some things that made him useful to God. I want to share those with you tonight. Five elements that made Moses useful to God. And they are the same that can make you and I useful to God. Number one, the person that God uses needs to be in covenant with God. The person that God uses needs to be in covenant with God. We find that in verse 9. Then went up Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, 70 of the elders. Notice the transitional word, then. That's how it begins, verse 9, then. Well, that's a transitional word at the beginning of the verse. It hinges on everything that happened in verses 1 through 8. Because of 1 through 8, then Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and the 70 elders could approach unto God. They couldn't do it before that. It was only after they had entered into that covenant. Everything that happens in verses 9 through 18 is predicated on the covenant made in verses 1 through 8. You see, these people could not have gotten that close to God, could not have approached to God before that covenant was made between them and God. 
If Moses and these men had not entered into that covenant with God, then they could not have been used by God, period. You say, well, God couldn't know, period. If they were not willing to enter into the covenant, we'd have an entirely different story here. But because they accepted the conditions of the covenant, and the covenant was sealed by the blood, and the precepts and the conditions were written down and agreed upon, these people have now entered into a covenant with God, and it makes them usable. Outside of this covenant, they're not usable. They are only in position to be used by God because they have been covered by the blood of the covenant. And I say the same is true for anyone who wants to be used by God. You say, I want to be used by God. You have to be in covenant with God. You have to enter into the new covenant with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Their covenant was based upon that testament, those laws. It was sealed by the blood of an animal sacrifice. It was done through the mediator of Moses. The new covenant replaces the old covenant, Hebrews tells us. And it is not sealed with the blood of animals. It is sealed with the blood of Jesus Christ. There is no human mediator. It is the God-man who is the mediator of the new covenant. And you and I enter that covenant by this faith agreement where we believe what God has said and we have agreed to do what he said to do in his testament. And so, if you want to be used by God, it begins right there. You say, well, I don't know if I want to sign up for all that Christianity stuff, and I don't know if I'm ready to make that commitment, and, well, I have some questions about some of the things, and what about other religions of the world? Listen, as much as you might want to be used, you're not going to be used by God until you enter into the covenant. Once you enter into the covenant, then it brings you in a position to be used by God. So, number one, the person used uh, the person God uses needs to be in covenant with God. Number two, the person God uses needs a clear view of God. We find this in verses 10 and 11. It says that Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, the 70 elders approach unto God in verse 10. They saw God. They saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet like a, like a paved work of sapphire stone. And, and as it were, the body of heaven in his clearness. And upon the nobles of the children of Israel, he laid not his hand. Also, they saw God and did eat and drink. It says that they saw God in his clearness or clearly and unobscured. That's the idea there. That word clearness that is used in verse number 10 is also translated as glory in Psalm 89:44. It is the idea of this glorious eminence that radiates from God. The person who is going to be used of God must see him as he truly is, not as they imagine him to be. Well, why did they need a clear view? Because they needed to understand who God is. They needed to see him as he truly is. If you and I are going to be used of God, we, we're not going to be used of God if we simply have an imaginary God, a God that we have imagined. A God of grace, but not a God of judgment. A God of love, but not a God of wrath. Hold on a minute. That's not the God of the Bible. That's not how he truly is. 
He is righteous. He is holy. He is just. He must judge sin. But he is infinitely loving and full of grace and not willing that any would perish. And so he sends his son to die on the cross for our sins. He sends the message into all the world. But if people reject to believe and accept him as he is, they're not going to be used of God. Do you understand that's why religious liberalism never works Theological liberalism never works. We are living in a theological liberal experiment in our day and time. You and I can look back through the American experience and we can track the mainline Protestant denominations that in the early days of colonial America believed in the God of the Bible. Whether they were Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, Lutheran, they had a shared belief in the core tenets of the faith. They believed who God was. But as with all institutions, there is a liberal drift that sets in. And if there are not men and women who will hold the ship straight, it will be carried away with the waves. And we watched that happening with the, we watched it happen with the mainline Protestant denominations. And look, I'm not throwing shade. You, you, you can go read the history and you'll find it that the Presbyterian denomination went theologically liberal. The Lutheran denomination went theologically liberal. The Methodist denomination went theologically liberal. They started discarding some of the basic truths and doctrines of God. Now, that's not to say that every Presbyterian, every Lutheran, every, everybody except for Baptists have, have gone liberal. But we can see it in the main denominations. And you know what they have found in fact, let me tell you this. The Episcopal denomination in Canada, one of the most liberal denominations in North America, conscientiously made changes to their doctrinal statement. It is projected that in the next 20 years, by the end of the next two decades, there will not be an Episcopal church in Canada. It is declining that quickly. Why? Because God can't use people who don't have a clear view of who he is. And so Baptists may not always be the nicest people, but we are trying to see God as he clearly is. And if we're going to be used to God, we need to have a clear view of God. They saw God in his glory like Ezekiel. What is described here in Exodus 24 is almost exactly described the same in Ezekiel when Ezekiel saw God in his clearness. And it's interesting, that happens in Ezekiel chapter number 1. Why? Because God has to give Ezekiel a clear view of himself so that Ezekiel can be used of God to be a prophet to the nation of Israel. It, 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 it is like uh, the Apostle John who, who saw God on the throne in Revelation chapter 4. 
He needed a clear view of God. He was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. He heard a voice behind him like a trumpet. He turns around and he sees Christ as the great high priest with, with feet that are glowing like molten brass and eyes of fire and hair is white and gird about with the loins and has on the breastplate and he gets a clear view. And In John chapter or Revelation 4, he's caught up into heaven. He sees the throne of God. God is sitting on his throne. It happened to Isaiah in Isaiah 6. It happened to uh, the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 9. They get a clear view of God, and from there, God is able to use them. These encounters with God are life-changing. And so if you and I want to be used of God, we need to have a clear view of who God is. You say, well, what do, do I wait for the sky to open? Do I go to Mount Sinai? I mean, what do I do? You, you, you open his revelation. This is where he's revealed himself. He did that individually throughout the progressive revelation of the Bible. And he reveals himself to Adam, and he reveals himself to Noah, and he reveals himself to Abraham, and to Joseph, and to Moses, and to David, and to Ezekiel, and Isaiah. And they write it down for us. So that if you and I want to have a clear view of God, all we've got to do is read the Bible. Read it from Genesis to Revelation, and you'll get a clear view of who God is. He is the creator, and he is the judge. He is the redeemer, and he is the lover of our soul. And so we need a clear view of God. Number three, the person that God uses needs the word of God. The person that God uses needs the word of God. Notice verse 12. The Lord said unto Moses, Come up to me in the mount and, and, and be there, and I will give thee tables of stone and a law and commandments which I have written that thou mayest teach them. It's interesting because it tells us in verse 4 that Moses wrote the words down when God said them. He, he documented it. He wrote it down. It is the, the conditions of the covenant. But God said, hey, I want to give you an original. I'm going to write it down for you. And I'm going to give it to you. And God writes it in the tables of stone. And when Moses comes off the mountain, do you know what he has? He has the word of God written by the finger of God. Why? Because we need the word of God if we're going to be used. He say, well, what do we do with it? The verse tells us. Moses read the word. How do I know that he read it? Because it was written. Why else was it written? If it was written, God doesn't write it so that we don't read it. God didn't write it in some heavenly language that nobody knows. He wrote it in Hebrew. Why? Because that's what they read. And so Moses reads the word. Not only does Moses read the word, but, but, but Moses is governed by the word. How do I know he's governed by the word? Because it says in verse 12 that it is law and it is commandments. Those are governance terms. These are not suggestions. These are not helpful hints. Uh, these are not allegorical stories to help you process your own experience. These are commands from God. 
And so the Word of God must govern us. It is not just my devotional. It is not just what gives me peace of mind and in a stressful life. It is also my code of conduct. It is my governing document. It is my personal constitution. It is what I am governed by if I'm going to be used by God. Not only did Moses read the Word and Moses was governed by the Word, but Moses was to teach the Word of God to others. Again, verse 12, God says, so you can teach them, that thou mayest teach them. Now understand, Moses was in a unique position here. Moses is the mediator. Moses is the leader of the nation of Israel. Moses is the lawgiver. He is the instrument through whom God is going to work. And so he's got to take what he got from God and he's got to pass it on and teach it to them. But can I tell you something that I have discovered in my own journey as a Christian? Is I, don't under, I never understand a text of Scripture as good until I have to teach it to somebody else. Right? You can sit in that pew for 67 years and listen to preaching every week and, and think that, you, you, man, you've heard every sermon in the Bible. I mean, you've heard every one of them. And the preacher will say, turn to John chapter 3, and you say, I know where this is going. Now, turn to Romans chapter 8. I've heard a message on Romans 8 before. But if I were to come to you and say, explain Romans chapter 8 to me, It'd be a whole different story, wouldn't it? Why? Because we've audited it. We've observed it. We've listened to somebody else's explanation of it. But I am telling you, it's next level understanding when you actually have to pass that information on to somebody else. And so while I believe that God gifts some people with the gift of teaching, that they're supposed to use that regularly in the body of Christ. I also believe that every Christian ought to teach somebody else something at some point about God's Word. Whether that's volunteering to be a vacation Bible school teacher one year, or whether that's doing a year as a Sunday school teacher, or whether that is simply trying to help a new believer understand some of the basic truths of the Bible, I am telling you, when the burden is placed upon you to explain it to somebody else, you will go deeper in that word than you've ever went before. Because there is a sacredness about the word of God, and you understand what it's writing on, and you say, I don't want to get this wrong. I don't want to mistell them. I understand that, but instead of just bowing out and saying, well, I'm not going to teach anybody anything because I don't want to mess it up, how about we lean in and say, you know what, I'm going to dig in and I'm going to figure out some things so that I can teach it right. The Bible says that we're supposed to be ready to give an answer to anybody who asks us of the hope that is in us. And so the person that God uses needs the word of God. I would say this. God has no use for the people who have no use for his word. Can I say that again? You say, that sounds harsh. Listen to it. God has no use for the people who have no use for his word. If you say, I don't, I don't need that. <laughs> I know I'm supposed to read my Bible, but come on, man. It's boring. 
It's got big words. Talking about people I don't understand. I, I don't get it. Well, listen, if you've got no use for God's word, how's God going to use you? If you don't ever walk with him in his word, if his word is not changing you into the image of Christ, then how can he use you? And so the person that God uses needs the word of God. Number four, the person that God uses needs other godly people. Verses 13 and 14. We find that there was an entourage that was with Moses. It's not just Moses. It's Moses, and it's his minister Joshua. And then we find that it's also Aaron and Hur, in verse 14, and the 70 elders of the nation of Israel. Just notice those people that are listed with Moses. Joshua, Aaron, Hur, elders. And think about who these people are. These are godly people. Now, I know they mess up. We're going to find out that when Moses comes off the mountain, he's going to have to straighten some things up. I know that. But they haven't messed up yet. They haven't made a golden calf yet. They haven't said we can't take the land yet. They, man, I'm telling you, they are taking steps of faith and they are walking with God. Think about Joshua. If you look back, Exodus 17, he was the captain of the army that is to fight the Amalekites. He, he's the dude who's down there leading the battle. And I'm telling you, those, those guys weren't fighting him with rubber swords. It was real blades and metal and his life was in danger. And he was willing to step up and take that lead. We see him as a worshiper in Exodus 33 when God's presence descends on the tabernacle that Joshua just wanted wants to stay there a while longer even after Moses leaves and of course we know that in Numbers 14 he's one of only two spies who say God said we could take the land we believe him don't turn back on him and and then ultimately Joshua becomes the successor of Moses in Deuteronomy 31 when God says I've chosen Joshua to lead these people into the promised land that's the kind of friend that Moses has as his closest companion and then we've got Aaron. Aaron is the brother. Aaron is the one that, that when, when, when Moses was first called by God and God said, I want you to go in and I want you to meet with Pharaoh, Moses like, I, 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 can't, I, I can't talk very good. And God says, well, what about your brother Aaron? I know he can talk. And so Aaron comes alongside Moses. He's with Moses. He meets Moses outside of Egypt. And he walks with him back in. And he gives him some of that credibility when Moses comes to meet with the leaders of Israel. Not only is he a brother, but he's a, he's a comrade. If Moses doesn't go into the presence of Pharaoh without Aaron. Every time you see it, from Exodus chapter 5 until Exodus chapter 12, every time Moses goes into the presence of, Aaron, uh, presence of Pharaoh, guess who's with him? Aaron. Hey, hey, remember that rod that turned into a snake? You know who was holding that thing? It was Aaron. And so we find that he was a comrade in arms. And, and then in Exodus 29, we find out that Moses, uh, Aaron becomes the first high priest. The very first one. The one who is tasked with offering to God. The one who gets to go into the Holy of Holies once a year. Nobody else gets to go into it. I know that Aaron made some mistakes, but I'm telling you, he's a godly man. And he's one of the people that Moses has surrounded himself with. Her. 
a man named Her. Kind of sounds like a boy named Sue, right? Her is the faithful man that holds up the arms of Moses when Joshua is fighting the battle. And, and when Moses' arms are up, they're winning. And when he gets tired and they go down, they begin to lose. And so Aaron gets on one side and Her gets on the other. And they hold his hands up for him so that the battle can be won. Hey, man, that's not a headline job. That's not the job that everybody's gunning for. That's not the quarterback. That's not the pitcher. That's not the one that gets all of the press. But that's a faithful man who says, Hey, I understand if your hand goes down that we lose the battle. I'm going to, I'm going to hold your hand up. There's also a telltale sign that, that her is a godly man. Even though there's not a lot said about him in Scripture, one of the reasons we know that he's a godly man because in Exodus 31 we're told he's the grandfather of Bezalel. And Bezalel is the man that God told Moses, Hey, I've gifted Bezalel. He will oversee the making of everything that goes into that tabernacle. Hey, you, you think Bezalel got there on his own? No, I'm telling you, Hur was a godly man. And he influenced his son, and he raised a godly son. And he influenced his grandson, and he raised a godly grandson. This is one of the guys that's with Moses. And then the elders... Who are these? Well, Exodus 18 tells us that they're able men, men of truth, men who fear God. And Numbers 11 tells us that they're spiritual men, that, that God took the spirit that was on Moses and he placed it on those men. What am I saying to you? I'm, I'm saying to you that the person that God uses needs other godly people. You say, I want to be used of God. Then don't spend all your time around ungodly people. Don't give all of your time, don't give all the influence on your life to people who, who don't know and love God and, and who don't encourage you to be a better Christian. That's not to say that we don't have any friends like that. We are supposed to be uh, the good influence on others. But it is to say we need some godly people around us. That's why God created the church. And he brought us together in community because he wants us to sharpen one another. He wants us to provoke one another to love and good works. He, he wants us to inspire one another. And he wants us to hold ourselves accountable to one another. And so if we want to be used of God, we need other godly people in our life. And then fifth and final, the person that God uses needs time alone with God. It's right there in her text, verses 15 through 18. Moses goes up on the mountain alone. He tells Aaron and her and the 70 elders, y'all go back to the camp. Elders, if you have any questions, you bring them to Aaron and her. Joshua stays with him. Joshua goes up on the mountain to some midpoint. And then when God calls Moses, Moses goes alone into the presence of God. We know this because when Moses comes back down in Exodus 32, he picks up Joshua down somewhere lower on the mountain, and then they go back to the camp where Aaron and the elders are. While God did put us into community as part of our faith journey, every man or woman used of God must spend time alone with God. I don't know how to explain it. I know that God is here when we gather. If two or three gather in his name, he's in the midst. There's worship that happens when we gather together. 
There's learning that happens when we sit in a congregation and the word is taught. There are benefits from being in small groups when we dialogue about faith issues and life issues and we give biblical counsel to one another. But there is something about time alone with God that that you get something there you don't get in group with other people. It is in that place of solitude. It is in that closet that Jesus talked about where we go to pray alone. Where God somehow begins to impact our heart and our life on a deeper level. While I love technology... And, and I can't think of a more convenient time in all of human history to live than what we have right now. The bane of our existence is the perpetual distractions that we have. That even when we're alone, we're not alone. Even when we are alone, we're connected to some social group through some form of media. Just think about the people that God used in the Bible who had time alone with God, Enoch. Enoch walked with God, the Bible says. Just Enoch and God. They had a regular meeting. They got together. They went on walks. They communed with each other. You say, that sounds nice. Guess what? Just You got two feet. Just go out and walk with God. You can do it. I, I remember at the first church where I, I, I worked at, I was... It, we were in our 20s, me and Melissa, gotten married and gotten comfortable, and I, I put on a few pounds. That happens to me. And so for lunch, instead of, you know, eating a big lunch and sitting down somewhere, I decided I'm going to walk around the church parking lot every day. And I thought, well, you know, walking is good, but you know, I, I can talk to God while I'm out here. And so I started walking with God, and I would just walk and pray. Walk and pray. You know, there's nothing in the Bible that says you have to be on your knees to, to, to talk to God, to get him to hear you. While I, I do believe that it is biblical to pray on our knees and that there are times when we ought to come before God on our knees. We, we need to, 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 to act out that humility, that submission. We find people praying, sitting up, laying down, standing up, walking, getting ready to, while they're verbally talking, praying mentally. And so you, you can walk with God. You can spend time with God every single day. Elijah spent time with God. You remember Elijah? He got so terribly depressed. And Jezebel said, man, I'm going to take you out. And this guy goes off into the wilderness. And it's in that solitude where he hears the still, small voice of God. And he goes back a new man. He goes back with a plan from God. He goes back with, with, with the instructions to go call Elisha and to go anoint the king. And, and God encourages him in that time alone. Daniel spent time alone with God. Remember how they got him? They knew that he went into his house every day and prayed towards Jerusalem. And so they got the king to sign a law that you can't pray to anybody except for the king for these next 30 days. And Daniel went into his house alone to pray. And that's where they got him. It was a regular habit of that man that was used of God. 
John the Baptist spent time alone with God. He's the, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. He doesn't live in the cities. He is out there alone with God. Paul did. Galatians 1, Paul talks about after he got saved, we find that he comes to Jerusalem and he comes in the church for a little while and then he disappears for some place until Acts 11. We don't know where he went until Galatians and Paul says, hey, I, I met with Jesus Christ. He gave me the revelation. That's where Paul got his theology. It was in his time alone with Jesus. The apostle John is, is alone with Christ. In John chapter, or Revelation chapter 1, he's on the Isle of Patmos. He's exiled there for his faith and, and it says he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and that as he prayed, he heard a voice behind him. What do they all have in common? Time alone with God. It's time alone with God. It's in this time alone with God that we are transformed into his image. We don't have the, the, the liberty this evening to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, but the entire chapter is recapping the events of the life of Moses. And it's talking about how that God gave a first covenant, the covenant of the law, and then he gave a second covenant. And then he describes how that Moses went up on the mountain, and when he came down off the mountain, his face was glowing from the glory of God because he was in God's glorious presence. And then it concludes by saying that we are changed into his image from glory to glory when we come into his presence and spend time alone with God. And so, if you want to be used by God, here's a starter pack for you. The people that God uses are in covenant with God. The person God uses needs a clear view of God. The person that God uses needs the word of God. The person that God uses needs godly people and the person that God uses needs time alone with God. And so if your heart's desire is to be used of God, the good news is God's looking for some people to use. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we do thank you so much for your word. I'm still astounded by the fact that you have entrusted human beings which, with such great tasks. Not only did you give... Adam, the job of naming every animal, but you gave us the job of spreading the gospel to the whole world. You left it up to us. That's our responsibility. If it doesn't get done, it's because we didn't do it. Lord, we want to be used by you. It's our sincere heart's desire. I pray and ask that you would help us to do the things that Moses did that made him usable that would make us usable to you. And I pray this and praise you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.